The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Tate Cast. I am Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. Also, you can check out the recently relaunched davismaddock.com. I got the domain transferred over from Soccer Dave, and I actually spent uh, a little bit of time last night, uh, and by that I mean about seven minutes, setting up the website to link to all the places that you can find the podcast. But that is there, that exists. I am going to be joined today by my good friend, Drew Dinkmeyer from dailyroto.com. He actually uh, has listened to the podcast and had a couple interesting thoughts on some things we've discussed. And when I first asked him to do this podcast, he was, he was pretty hesitant. And I think I had, to, I had to bring some quality material to get you to agree to come on. Yeah, I mean, one, I think your audience is generally probably tired of hearing about me just rant about things that I've ranted about for last few years yeah no uh, one wants to hear your story again yeah no people are done with that yeah, they don't care. so we needed and, and two i know what working with you is like so i was like i'm not gonna just get on the air and just see what happens so like send me a generic outline of things you want to talk about and then i tore that to shreds the outline that you sent and was like no let's talk about this instead and here we are i mean to be fair people actually i would bet that if people listening to this show were being really honest, though, they would rather us have a discussion about what the Boston Celtics roster <laughs> will look like next year as opposed to the discussion that we are about to have. Like, that's, that's just true. Sucks for them. Like, the Nate Duncan NBA show, it does numbers compared to every other NBA talk show that exists because it gives people exactly it is rampant speculation and they they go through all of the salary cap machinations like yes. him and um what's the, oh i feel danny larue danny i LaRue. felt really bad i couldn't remember his name for a second like they it's it's it is just basketball trade cap it's like bill simmons trade machine pornography but like done very intelligently yeah but actually knowing what you're doing like that's the thing i I can't, I'm not as good as those guys, and you're certainly not as good as those guys right off the top of our head, like coming up with cap. cap, I'm uh, definitely as good as Bill Simmons at it. I can come up with fake trades that would make Simmons' head Sure, of course. I mean, you've had just as successful a career as Bill Simmons. I mean, essentially, yes. This take cast, when we look back at things, well, it'll be like the 30 for 30s or the take cast. I'm not sure which one. It will one. be like when Bill Simmons started publishing his online column for the first time in like 1998. It really will. That's the yeah. general idea. It'll revolutionize the podcast industry. Something I've realized is that there are just too many podcasts. It's there like are. Absurd. So you decided to start yeah. another one. To flood the, well, you know, I'm, <laughs> long, I'm long on the industry of uh, podcasting as a whole. 
I think that's my only that's that's just that's just true. But uh, yeah, well, there's there's too much there's too much content in general. Like right. and I'm I'm part of the problem. I run a content business, but I mean whether it's I mean and this is this is something that should be a good indication of like hey we're running out of things with society. Like all all we all we figured out how to man- manufacture jobs now are people yelling at each other on TV. Like we're automating so many different things that the jobs we have now are just to entertain everyone else because their lives are being made so much easier for them by having, you know, delivery services through Amazon for your groceries, through everything. So the only other jobs that we're creating now are ways to entertain people, which is why we have all this unbelievable amount of content and a lot of great content, whether it's podcasts or whether it's shows or whatever. Um, but that should be a pretty good like leading indicator on how, hey, we might be running out of jobs. Well, unproductive time is at an all-time high. People, and I, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm involved in this, but people just waste their time. People, they take their time and they flood. Like something I've, I've recently started doing is I actually have like alerts on my phone. Like you need to go read 10 pages of a book right now. Just like grab a book off your shelf and just go and do it. Because what is, what is like checking my email or scrolling through my Twitter feed or like, waiting to hear back from someone really doing for me. Like there are much more productive ways through that time, but that's, that's pretty disgusting that the human brain really what it is is the human brain has just this need to be stimulated now that did not exist 40 or 50 years ago. Like if you saw someone walking down the street right now, no phone in hand, no headphones, they weren't walking a dog. They were just walking and looking straight ahead. You'd be like, that person is either homeless or a psychopath. Yeah, our brains are getting rewired constantly and we're rewiring everything for short-term attention spans and short-term pleasure centers, basically. So like everything that we do is to get like a little little short-term high, whether it's getting a favorite or getting a retweet or getting somebody to interact with you. I love a good retweet. Just nothing's Um, better. (laughs) Nothing's better. It's just, it's the way that our, our minds are now being rewired and it has a huge impact on all of our lives uh, in many, many different ways. I know there's a ton of like really good long form content that I have to make an effort to get through now mm-hmm. because, because my brain just starts wandering. I start switching tabs and like, Oh, what's going on here? And I'm like, not even at the end of a paragraph, I'm like mid sentence and I'm like, Oh, wandering off. Um, so yeah, it's a huge, huge challenge for the long-term thinking of society. I still can't believe I'm here. And the one, the only movie I think I've ever shut off early or walked out of when watching was idiocracy. And that movie now looks brilliant. And I feel like I need to rewatch it because basically like we're all, we're all generally getting dumber. Definitely. Like I feel it in myself. I feel my cognitive abilities being less sharp than when I was 20. And like also because I'm, I'm just not intellectually challenged all that often. Like playing, playing DFS and like um, stuff like that is some of the only things that like really cause my brain to try and problem solve. But in my day-to-day life, I don't really find that many examples of, of needing to come up with solutions that are not handed to me. That's interesting. Um, I think as you get older, you get more aware of problems in general. I was talking with some friends recently about this that I remember being a kid and thinking about the phrase what keeps you up at night and thinking like I don't understand that. I don't understand what would what like 
video games. I want to like my parents not letting me stay up is like, sure. I want to be up. What do you mean keeps you up at night? And now as I'm in my late thirties, when I lay my head down before I go to bed, there are a flood of ideas that come into my head about the world, about society, about, you know, eventually trying to raise a family and different things that are worrisome. And I, I think as you get older, you recognize a lot more problems around you uh, more severely because they all become more real. I think that's true. And I also think that and like it, it is just statistically true that like very serious anxiety and mental illness is one more recognized now, but also I think it is a product of Western society as a whole. There's just, you're not really encouraged to be introspective at any level of American education. I know that I certainly did not really encounter any of that throughout my education. And so it's a skill that people don't have. And so that pre-sleep state is kind of like, it's, it's pre-dreaming. It's your brain flooding with all of this, you know, should be introspective stuff. It's, it's stuff that you should realize while you're in the moment throughout your day, but you block it off because you are watching safe on Netflix or what, like you're, you're, you're just constantly delaying any thought about the moment that you were in, or really people are just living these unexamined lives. And I'm, I'm, definitely not meaning to preach like certainly all of us are guilty of this to some degree but it is it is something that rings very true and you mentioned a book to me yesterday that i read when i was younger and used to do drugs which was island by aldous huxley and one of the big themes in that is introspection and eastern religion and stuff like that and i just i do think it's so interesting how as you know like no one is going to argue that western society is in a good place right now and the the further away we get from being in the moment, from being disconnected, from being in the lives that being in our own heads, I guess, really, I would say, the the further away we drift from a productive, peaceful society. Well, I think one of the things that you talked about when you talked about like we're not meant to be introspective or we're not taught that from a young age, we're basically taught everything in our culture around achievement mm-hmm. and achievement being ascertaining essentially what someone else's goals are for you not really what your own goals are for you because you're never you're never you're never actively taught to try to figure out your own goals you're like taught to like stay on this path if you get good grades in school then you go to college if you get good grades in college and you get a college degree then you get a good job out of college if you get a good job out of college then you have a chance to you know buy a home and raise a family and and so on and so forth and so with the ideas all kind of around achievement. It's all, it's all late stage capitalism. That's all it is. It's all, it's all your life path being determined for you by massive giant $9 trillion corporations from 110 years ago. It is. And then as our society evolves and the gaps between the haves and have nots widen, it puts more pressure on following that path as well. Because like if you stray from the path and you make a mistake, or you don't have an opportunity, you are punished more severely than ever before as the, the uh, equality gaps widen in terms of finance. So it's, um, it's, that book was really eye-opening for me, and it was reckon, recommended to me by Andrew Wiggins, uh, not the basketball player, the DFS player. Um, and he's kind of like a young hippie in my mind, and I think he's kind of transforming me into a little bit of a young hippie as well. Like as I get into my late thirties, I think more about what the world would be like 
if I grew up under a different set of philosophies or a different set of principles, or if the world focus wasn't on me, if like my, if the lens that I viewed my life from wasn't solely through my own eyes, but through others' eyes in terms of what the world would look like, how would things be different? And so that book to me was brilliant in the fact that it was written in the fifties and it was all these ideas about the differences between Eastern and Western culture and the differences between um, like organized religion and um, kind of fine and spirituality and different things like that. And the, the thing that hit home with me about the book is like, this book is written in the fifties and it's basically it's this, you know, uh, fictional Island that people are living in and they're living in this great community and they love everything about their community and they're all working to harvest the community for each other, but they're facing an outside presence and a consistent outside force of authoritarianism and capitalism. And it's like this book was written in the fifties and it's the same stuff happening over and over again. And in this book, they reference like the rise of Hitler and whatnot. And around the world, authoritarianism is rising all over the place whether it's Southeast Asia, whether it's here in the U.S., whether it's Italy, uh, people are looking to find... It's, it's even in... It, the crazy thing is that it's even in places that are, are like the birthplace of modern democratic thought. Like, it's wild to me that France almost had elected a Trump equivalent because they, historically speaking, France uh, has been very opposed to any sort of autocratic government like that's like that's like wild like people's brains are changing to a wild degree sort of stuff yeah and what ha- it, it's what happens when financial pressures hit you in a really specific way that make you that make you feel like there's no other outs and if you feel like there's no other outs then you're looking for a savior and once you're looking for a savior you're open to authoritarianism and that's basically what's happening around the world since kind of the global financial crisis put pressure on a bunch of individual economies and that put pressure on a lot of individual people. And now people are more, more willing to cast aside, um, cast aside original independent thinking and go back to kind of like tribalism, find, yeah, tribalism and find somebody to believe in to save me from this. If I was doing this show with a different person, this is where I would evangelize about Bitcoin and I don't think I don't think that Bitcoin in and of itself is the brilliant, amazing technological innovation that a lot of Bitcoin maximalists do. But I do think that the problem truly I actually do believe this. I think that most of the problems with our government and with the way that it structures Western society is due to the fact that they can just continually print money and it so it it keeps poor people poor because they can't invest and so on and so forth. And you can only pay your taxes in this money. And if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to go to jail. And I, I think that in this way that I never examined until I was 25 years old, I do think that like government issued inflationary currency is like this giant systematic human problem that touches everyone's life on the whole globe. And it's like you, this wild thing to me also is that everyone learns the same economics in middle school, high school, and even economic students in college. And it's all based off of a lot of this stuff that's failed in the real world. And it's, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm not an, I'm not an economist. I'm not a math genius. Like I'm not here to say that Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency is definitely the way I will just say that the, the current system that exists is 
it's really wild to me how unexamined it is. It's like the least examined part of politics. That's the cocoon of the real world, man. To bring it back to episode three and Evan Silva talking about the cocoon. I mean, the cocoon is not specific to football. It is. No, the cocoon is the world. It is. It is. And um, it's something that you don't, I don't know that you necessarily realize. I mean, it took me a long time to realize it. I remember when I got out of, when I was in college and like looking for jobs and stuff, people were like, oh, it's not, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Think about what that means. Like, at I mean, its, it's, it's incredibly true. I'm, I have no discernible skill as a fantasy analyst, but that was my job for like four years because <laughs> I just got in at the good time and made good friends. But, th- but think about what that means at its root. It, it means that your, your skills are not as valuable as your network. Right. And networks have all sorts of inherent barriers to break down, right? So that's what like Evan was talking about with football, that like it's just hard for people that aren't inside the network to break it down. And as a result, you don't get diverse sets of opinions. You get people latching on to what other people did before them as like that's the way to do it. And since we don't have a strong desire for the scientific method and like testing processes in general, then you don't get innovation. Um, and so the areas that have opened up in sports to more diverse opinion sets like basketball and baseball a little bit, baseball was kind of like the first to open up a little bit. Basically, basically Bill James just broke the door down. Um, but basketball is the one that's made a little bit more strides in terms of like diverse opinion sets and trying to solve the game. Um, you, you get stagnant in the game. Um, the, the other side of that though, is when you get really rapid innovation in these games, ultimately most games that you play are ultimately solvable, whether it's like a board game or whether it's, um, a sport, you figure out what the right strategy is. And then it's just, it comes down to execution. And in sports, it comes down to talent and execution. Um, but that's kind of the other side of it is like, do you, do you want the game stagnant or do you want the game solved? And right now, like we're in between on, on sports like basketball and baseball of those, of those two. Baseball, baseball has got real problems. Baseball has, it's got real problems in terms of entertainment and watchability. Basketball does not at all. I don't, I feel that way. And I think a lot of people feel that way, but I, I also hear often people complain that they don't want to watch just team shoot threes. Well, this is what you hear about basketball. One racist people tell you that they don't play defense and those, (laughs) those people are never going to watch basketball anyways. So there's no point in trying to appeal to those people in any way. And the second thing that you hear is, is the, not even the three pointer thing. I don't hear that from real people. What I hear from real people is the, that it's just annoying to watch golden state and Cleveland every year. Yeah. Cleveland will be done after this year. That won't ha- LeBron's going to leave. That's yep. going to be gone. And I actually think that the NBA and Adam Silver just could not be more pleased with the way that this Warriors thing is going. The, the, the numbers, the ratings for the finals and the conference finals have gone up every year since the golden, since golden state and Cleveland played the first time. And the league having a heel that powerful uh, brings people to games. I, I think it's a good thing for, for, the league's bottom line, not necessarily the watchability of the sport, but more people are watching it because of that. Yeah. In an era where TV ratings are going down for everything. Um, So it's, it's been interesting to see. And, but that's also been the history of the NBA. There's always been a dominant force. There's always been when you go into every single season, you have an idea 
of what handful of teams can compete for a title. Um, maybe the last few years it's been two instead of four, but it's you been know. one. And yeah. I don't even I don't even count the Cavaliers win in 2016. It's just <laughs> I mean, like they shouldn't they even win. really. They did win, but it's just like it, it was the biggest fluke of like all time. It was just like insane. It, I mean, a, a lot of stuff went their way for that to happen. Um, but that's also like, this is also the nature of the game, right? Like the NBA playoffs is best of seven uh, throughout. And as a result, in a game with only five people on the floor at a time and one person can really dominate or a few people can really dominate the outcomes, it's hard, it's hard in a best of seven series to flip that. Um, Do you want to really think outside of the box? Do you know the most painfully obvious solution to talent being pooled together in one player having such a big impact? It's, it's, it's not a good suggestion, but this would mathematically do it. I'm afraid of what you're going to say, but go ahead. You make the court bigger and you add a sixth player. Mathematically, that makes the game harder to solve. It changes the parameters, and it change it. It helps fix tanking because the re- the impact of one player is reduced by twenty percent, and it helps the super team problem as well. It it spreads the talent out even further, and a team with Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson is a little bit less effective. Yeah, I'd have to really think through what the dimensions of the court would look like in that yeah. scenario. It's not, this is not a real. This is not a real suggestion. Into. Yeah, it's not something I think is a good idea. It's just a thought yeah. experiment. Because yeah, it, and the, the court would have to expand substantially. <laughs> like, like it would have to be much bigger to be how, able. To how much bigger do you think? Um, well, if you're increasing the amount of players on the floor by essentially twenty percent, when you have to increase the space naturally by twenty percent. I mean, I don't know if it's a straight linear <laughs> equation, but I would think so. I would think the court would have to be way bigger. Um, but yeah, so I think that one of the interesting things is like, what do people really want in their sports? Because after after Golden State won, Twitter was very un- upset. Twitter was very unhappy with with another Golden State Cleveland scenario. Um, Wait, are you talking about after the Houston series? Yeah, after I Go- personally, yeah. I personally was very happy about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure people who people only. who had money on Golden State were happy. Everyone else was upset, um, and Twitter was just like, "How so... did Tommy G feel?" <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I but Twitter was very upset in general, and it comes back to like something that I find interesting in entertainment and in sports in particular is people really don't like the feeling that outcomes are predetermined. Um, They really like to feel that there's a level of parody and that there's a level of unknown when they're watching sports, which I think is interesting because people don't really worry about that with other entertainment fields. Like if you go to a movie, if you go to like a John Wick movie, right? John Wick opening scene is in some sort of gunfight or whatever. You know John Wick isn't dying. Like what what time like how many movies ever has the the lead character been killed in like the first scene? You know the end result. Pulp you fiction. know that Yeah, exactly. There's like one. There's like there there's not many. So you know the end result of the movie in a general sense most of the time. Yet you go watch movies and you enjoy them. You know, in a general sense, most sports seasons, which teams are going to be there at the end. In basketball, the way the rules are set up, because it's less 
variant because of the seven game series, you get there more frequently than you do in football. Like if we had best of five series in footballs, how many freaking Super Bowls would the Patriots have by now? Like they, they probably have them all. But I think that goes, that feeds into the idea that football is much further away from being solved than basketball is. Basketball is much closer to being played in the most mathematically correct way, especially once you get to the conference finals. These teams know the math. These teams exploit the strategy. Whereas in the first round, like the Milwaukee Bucks are playing about as far away from mathematically sound basketball as you can have. Yeah, but you would think evolution will eventually get us there, right? So then the question is, is basketball really fun or like base? I think baseball is the one that's dealing with this most intimately now because you've got the game solved with like reliever dominating innings, um, starters working less, more platoon matchups in the bullpens. And then you've got the offense figuring out things with, well, basically like we just want to walk or hit home runs. And now the game is home runs, strikeouts and walks. It's like three true outcomes. Mostly it's, interminably slow because the platoon changes the relief pitcher changes the constant bullpen changes and the longer at bats looking for just home runs strikeouts or walks and so the game is not matching up with the pace of society but the game in its potentially solved form which is the most correct mathematical way to play the game is going in the opposite direction of what would be entertaining in terms of like seeing different styles play, seeing more balls in play. Like it's not super entertaining to just sit there and watch walks and strikeouts and the occasional bomb in, in baseball. And that's kind of where we're heading. So like, what does the sport do ultimately in a game that you're trying to best put yourself mathematically in the best shape to win, but like, how do you regulate more variance into the sport? Essentially, if your crowd wants more variance, if they want different things than what they're seeing on the field. I don't think they're, well, I would say the answer is that baseball is eventually going to die out. It will be the first, it will be replaced by soccer within, I mean, I, I don't know, 30 years probably, I would guess. So if you, but if you were running baseball, like what would you try to do to prevent that from happening? If I was running baseball, uh, so the big issue you run into anything where you try and fix the game of baseball to make it more appealing to the modern viewer, um, to make it shorter, to make it more appetizing for television is that baseball is the one sport where records are like sacred. You just, yep. you cannot, you cannot assail the hits record, the Cal Ripken Ironman record, the home, like you, you can't. And so like making a game six innings, that's the right there. That's, that's, that's what all, they should be doing. That's what they should be doing. But you can't because anyone who loves baseball will just lose their minds. Yeah, and that's the, that's the challenge that I think baseball is facing quicker than basketball because not every team is adapting the approach in basketball to just maximize threes. Um, I think teams will eventually figure that out because three is 50% more than two, that it's just so much more valuable that you should be really trying to maximize those shots. Now, the NBA can do things differently where they can like move the three-point line further back and make it a tougher shot and different things like that. But um, it's interesting to hear frustrations with the sports themselves as they evolve towards being more solved. So like, it seems like the, the generic sports fan wants things somewhere between like not evolving at all and not solved. 
and the problem is if you like constantly move in, in a progressive fashion, you're eventually going to get to solved. And like, there's certain games that I play, like I'll, I, I've talked about this on Maya show, but I play like risk on like my handheld devices as like a fun game or whatever. That game is like solved. I know how to win the game. Every time I play the game, it's just a matter of basically if the, if the dice roll correctly for me, mm-hmm. um, that's ultimately what baseball and basketball will be. And the dice rolls will be the equivalent of, you know, like randomness of shooting and randomness of referee calls, but also randomness of like player transactions and stuff. Um, so it'll be interesting to see like where the comfort zone is for leagues and their sports fans, where they can find enough variety um, in the results. And I think ultimately what might happen is you might move back to shorter series in the NBA and things like that. that Five game series. Yeah. That introduce a little bit more variance um, to people, which is also an interesting thing to me is that, why do people want variance in their sports outcomes, but they don't want variance or they want parity, I should say, in sports outcomes. But in our country, they don't really want parity in financial outcomes. Like they, 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 like people very strongly believe in uh, hard, ba- hard based capitalism and people really strongly believe in like the highest end of talent pool making substantially more money than everybody else. But you put that on the, you get the warriors together and they do that and everybody loses their mind and people are upset. It's I think just, it's just an entrenched meme. I think it's just like something that people have always been told about sports. So they've just believed that's the way that things are supposed to be done. That's and, always supposed to be fair. And it's yeah. always supposed to be like everybody's playing on the same field and whatnot. Yeah. And it's just, it's like an effort thing. Like if you, like they just believe that if you like, what's, what's the thing that people always say about Westbrook, even, even people that don't like him, it's just, they, they admire how hard he plays and how hard he tries. Even if he, even if in trying that hard and caring that much, he kills his team. Like, yeah, I mean, that's what it is to be a Westbrook fan. Cause the other, the other side of not being a Westbrook fan is, is a much harsher judgment. Love on. that man. I will, I will run through brick walls for that guy. Even if I acknowledge that the team would be better if he would just chill every once in a while. Yeah, he will also run through brick walls for himself mm-hmm. in the in the in the thought of it helping the team, but really but for himself. You take you hold your tongue. <laughs> so I think what people want is they want it to seem like it's fair for everyone, so that when their team wins, they can ascribe values that they project onto their team. Right. So we want the perception of a level playing field. Right. Which is so, like, interesting because that actually does mimic society. When the Royals won the World Series, they won it because their bullpen was so, so staggeringly great. It was like the sport had never seen anything like that, where when, once a team got the lead, they, the, I forget the exact stat, but it's something like in those two seasons, they lost like two games after leading in the seventh inning or later. And no one talked about that in Kansas City. Not that was not a talking point. It was that the team had grit and effort right. and heart, and they tried so hard and they cared so much. And I got swept up in it because my team was winning a championship, and that was great to watch and to experience. But retrospectively, looking at it, the team was like fairly bad. Um, but they just they they ran crazy hot and uh, played a really mentally weak Mets team, and just kind of got lucky. I mean, they, they were somewhat revolutionary, though, in the bullpen stuff. I mean, that started the, the, the wider trend in the playoffs of basically shortening the game to, like, five, six innings. Um, so, you know, they were somewhat ahead of the curve there. 
even though they were very behind the curve and where they would bat Alcides Escobar. Um, he rebatted last night. <laughs> he moves up, up hitting second again, which is just... And he un- had a huge game. Uh, unforgivable. <laughs> they scored, ele- they scored 11, they scored 11 runs. Alcides Escobar is batting second for the rest of the year. So it has to have worked. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, in, it's interesting when I... Because I'm so... Um, I'm so removed from the way that I watched sports when I was a kid where I really cared a ton about my team and um, I saw everything through the lens of that team and I, I'm just so far removed from that that I kind of enjoy watching how other people process sports and remembering how I used to process it because uh, it does bring back some good memories. But it's also fascinating to me to see the differences in how people want their sports and how people want their society and and the differences between the two. Um, and so I'm interested to see like if, if eventually games get solved, like let's say baseball gets solved and it gets solved in a way that is not entertaining to people, um, which I think is kind of what's happening. Well, people um, hate the shift. Yeah. Does, does I was, the game. I was at a white, I was at a white Sox game last week and like four or five people around me were compl- like every time Chris Davis came up, <laughs> The, the shift was like the third baseman was like behind second base and the people around me were just like actively like groaning. Yeah. People don't like it. So if people don't like the way that the game evolves correctly, then does the game just go away? And if that happens with all sports, like let's say, you know, uh, the NBA becomes a league where everybody, every time down they're shooting threes and that becomes unappealing for some people. Um, does what happens like what fills that void for people um if because sports is a huge part of people's lives it's a huge distraction for a lot of people do they find another way to get distracted or do they view sports like the the really uh optimistic utopian out output would be that they view sports as like, hey, it's been solved by the scientific method. Let's see what other ways we can use the scientific method to help society. I'm here to tell things. you that's never happening. That's not happening. It's never happening again. Yeah, people are out on science in general, which is sad. Well, you know, it is, it is what it is. Maybe it'll make a comeback, like fashion. Maybe like science just goes in and out of people's interests. But yeah, I, I don't like what happens if these, and maybe, maybe we all just condense into like one sport. Maybe we regress so hard that like all of these sports become less interesting to us because they're solved. And we just go back to like, we regress all the way back to like gladiator stuff. And it's just like, Ed, the only sport is MMA. Well, if you don't think gladiator like activities are in play in America in the next 50 years. I think you're wrong. <laughs> I think they're very much in play. I mean, that's, that's the interest around uh, MMA. I would be um, I would be short baseball over the next thirty years, and I would be short football. But I think that basketball is going to be, and this is actually something that Zach Lowe kind of talks about every once in a while on his pod. He'll kind of hint at it. But the issue with solving basketball is that at some at some point, if you're really going with like five, six, eight guys who can shoot three pointers. On, on the floor, there are ways defensively to, to really stifle that. Like if you play two centers against a lineup of just straight up six, eight guys, they're going to be able to like score a ridiculous amount of points per possession. They're going to have like absurd offensive rebounding rates. Like I think there's, I think there's a little bit more wiggle room in basketball actually, other than just shooting three pointers every time. I mean, it depends on how the players evolve. I mean, if the centers are, 
Anthony Davis-esque freaks. Which, like, like Joel what if you were an Anthony Davis-esque freak, wouldn't – like, j- j- you you will be playing basketball. Like, there's yeah. a 0% chance you would be doing anything else. Yeah, but the difference is now, before the qualifications were, are you tall? Now the qualifications are, are going to be, are you tall and are you skilled? And that's going to narrow that that pool down quite a bit um, in, term, in terms of, of bringing on those talents. I mean, yeah, but yeah it's that, true. They, but they, yeah. Basketball has more ways to play the game in general than baseball, like because there's more interactions. Yeah. Baseball, baseball is essentially a one-on-one game with a bunch of people behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, so those interactions allow for a lot more nuance within what the solved version of the game looks like and a lot more room to grow, which I think football will have a lot of room to grow as well. But football, the equivalent would be, you know, teams just passing every single down and but if defenses were able to evolve enough to actually force completion percentages down to where they were like closer to like 55% or something like that then the game would be kind of boring well football actually has already been made more intolerable through quote unquote solving because i mean is there anything more disheartening in professional sports than watching an incomplete pass it it is hor it is horrible to but just the, see these teams going three and out with right but the th- but the thing that they've done to skirt that is the innovation on the short passing games yeah is all the, yeah all the stuff that allows you to get free at the line of scrimmage and and all the crossing routes and all the pick plays and everything that's how they've got around all that that like it keeps the interest of the game moving um and so that that's the question is like can the defense evolve to a level that and maybe they'll they'll just always have the rules barrier that they'll just always be able to limit the rules on the side of the defense. Um, that's just from a pure game perspective that keeps the game kind of interesting to people. I think I would like football more if it was played um, small Kansas high school style eight on eight. It, and it's just that's like basically like pure air raid and like there's like hardly any offensive or defensive line play. And do you, you don't need, you do don't you, run the ball. Do you need the tackling? for football to be entertaining to you? No, I, but I'm not a barbarian. I don't think I do. I don't, I don't, I don't drink but people support the military. So, but, but people think this is crazy. Like people think that that idea is crazy, but I feel like all of the athleticism that I love watching when I see a football game happen, like wide receivers going up and making unbelievable catches in contested situations and stuff like that. I don't need the, the, the physical hits afterwards. Um, like I, I, I don't need that. Most of the regret when I'm watching football comes at the, you know, at the, at the untimely hit, the Ryan Shazier situation mm-hmm. or whatnot. Um, then I think, uh, what am I, what am I watching? What am I doing? Um, but all the like unbelievable skill that I find so nuanced and so cool doesn't, I mean, outside of like Alvin Kamara breaking tackles, which is like crazy cool. I, there's not a lot of extra benefit to me that like I could love the game if it was essentially flag football. Um, but I don't think, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't I mean, know. That, if, it would never, that will never happen. Yeah. I mean, the question is, will all the head injury stuff in the evolution of humans continuing to get bigger, faster, stronger, and just make yeah, that'll kill the sport collisions. before anything else does. So you think they, so you think they will definitely die on the vine and you think they would never go to, I think, I think they, I think either way they die because I think if you eliminate tackling the, like you and I think about football in a very different way than Jim Bob Cooter thinks about football, right? 
like the average Detroit Lions fan does not watch football and analyze it and think about it the same way that you and I do. I don't know. Jim Bob Cooter's offense kind of gets people in space. That was, I would have gone with Brian. Schott- I would have gone with Brian Schottenheimer. Yeah. So like Brian Schottenheimer loves to see a good fullback crack block <laughs> and that just couldn't matter less to you and I. And there's just, there is something pretty barbaric, like kind of almost pre-human about football that I really don't like. I actually kind of wish I didn't like football as much as I did, but it's the sport I watched the most growing up. It's the sport I know the most about. And there is something weird about there's, I don't, I don't, and I, I, this is going to sound like I'm bigging myself up and I'm not at all, but just when I watch the game, it just intuitively makes sense to me. Like I can see things in the movements and the, the actions of the players that I can't and anything that just like in basketball, I'm not able to see a play kind of as it's happening the way I am in football and like kind of compartmentalize it. And that bums me out because I wish I was smarter about basketball than I am, but I, I'm not. And no, no amount of Zach Lowe podcasts and whatever is going <laughs> to get me there. You know, it's just kind of something that is. So it bums me out that the NFL is like this, like ass backwards political organization that like does nothing to create any good. And it's just so kind of a bummer. If, if you think the NFL goes away and you think baseball goes away, what do you what do you think is our sports? I am I am long soccer man. But so you think like fifty years from now or however many years from now, our sports world is just soccer and basketball, and and maybe even something that doesn't exist yet. But I I know for a definitive fact, soccer is not a solvable game because it's all pretty much individual talent. Like individual brilliance is what decides big soccer games. It it does it managers can have a giant impact in like making individual players bring out their best skill sets and like putting players in positions to succeed. But like, you can't, you cannot coach like Gareth Bale's overhead kick right in the champions league. You're never coaching anyone to do that. That's pure instinct. That's pure. What existed in Gareth Bale's brain that no one else incubated, but himself. So the thing that I, so I don't know soccer well enough to contest that, that, explanation it seems fine to me the one thing that soccer also has in its favor is the fact that because it's generally lower scoring that means that there's generally more of variance more variance right and so and people love variance so like no other sport gives it to you that way yeah a game that like naturally has that variance built in certainly helps some now most of that variance is offset by the way that the teams operate in terms of the big financial gaps and the big skill gaps that teams are able to put out there. But even in games where, you know, team A is super loaded and team B is not, you can have unusual results. Yeah, you can – Manchester United in the English Premier League, most of you listening to this probably don't watch soccer at all. They're the richest club in the world. No one has more money to them. They lost in the league game where you play 38 games. They lost to each of the three poorest teams when they played. And that just the Patriots don't lose to the Dolphins. It doesn't happen, right? But in just the way soccer works in over 90 minutes, it can't happen. So the challenge for soccer is that, I mean, at least in, in America, it just hasn't, it hasn't taken on and there's not, there's not a longevity of it. And there's not a league that's built up big enough that, that it's encompassing most of like, there's not enough of generational soccer fans. So that's going to take a lot of time. 
because like most people get their influence on their sports through their parents Mm -hmm. or through older or uncles or, you know, whoever extended family around them that grows up watching those sports. And so like you need generations to develop and you need the league to spread out even more than, I don't know how many teams the MLS has, but I don't think they have. They just added a new one last night, but I think it's like 21. Oh, okay. They're over 20. That's not bad then. I thought they were in like the teens still. They, um, so they're like doing, they're like very actively working on an expansion thing right now because there's a realization that this, the World Cup is such a global phenomenon. Like people in the United States will watch the World Cup at like very high numbers. And so there's like a big put like marketing push and expansion push yeah, that makes from sense. the league right now. Around the World Cup. That makes sense. Um, but that'll take some time to like get there. So I don't know if the timing like coincides. I don't know how this all happens, but if like, if sports isn't the distraction, uh, what, what is like virtual reality, like just living in some like virtual reality game world that we're basically like, there's a, there's a, I was doing research for this podcast and I remembered this Disney movie that's basically about these people, uh, society basically becomes you go and live on this big ship and you're just fat and you never move and you basically move around on like a Segway all day with a screen in front of you and you're like fed through a tube i think it's wally maybe i don't know but that's like a few that's like a future that's in play where just everyone's a fat bag of bones with a screen in front of their face being fed through a tube well, what's the, is, was it Avatar was the movie that like you're, like the body is in like a, what looks like a cryogenic like. Right. Yes. Case. The James Cameron movie. Yeah. And your, and your brain is what's alive. Basically your body is just there to house the brain that's alive and the brain's living in another world completely. Is that where the technological revolution ends up taking us? That we're all like living in pods and our brains are just operating in some other like fantasy world that's in the range of outcomes i think i think that vr there are a lot of issues with vr as it exists right now the the biggest thing is that uh well there are a couple things the first is that they're unable to create vr to be seamless because it gives people headaches because the vr actually moves faster than the human eye so when you move your head left or right it causes motion sickness and the other thing is we're, we're not really anywhere close to digital immortality. And all that really means is that there's been no way to codify the human brain. No scientist has been able to binary code out the yeah. processes of the human brain because it's just so much, there's been like estimates of how, you know, how many terabytes the human brain is. And it's just not been possible to digitize that. And until the human brain can be digitized, all this stuff is like, so theoretical because you would still need to come out for air and food and right right that makes sense you'd be aware that you were in a vr experiment unless that problem is solved which like i don't know that's an interesting philosophical question if you knew that you could have your perfect life in vr but your physical body would just be this fat blob in a tank would you do it i don't i think that's a very interesting philosophical question Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, the idea of the tank, I think the idea of living without the physical consequences, you know, theoretically, because theoretically your mind would just be operating some sort of body in the virtual reality space. And I don't know, would your, would your, well, would your mind ever be able to get past whatever your actual body is physically feeling? Well, 
if the brain becomes digitized, what, what I'm saying is that the, like the coding of your brain could be altered by whatever it's plugged into. So you wouldn't even know. Right. So that, that outcome is perfect, right? There's no risk of, there's no risk of like, of like depression yeah. or physical aches or um, all sorts of risks. Like your, your, your body just wears off while your brain like lives on in, in virtual reality that I think everybody would sign up for that. But the question is, I don't think are, everyone like, would. I think a lot of people would not. I think like religious extremists would not. I think that like a faction war of like religious extremists and like progressive modernists becomes a real thing then. No, no hardcore religious person of any denomination would do it. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not, I, that's not my circle. That's not who I like interact with on not, a daily I basis. Just, I just read a lot because I didn't have friends. So I, yeah. So I have no idea if that's, if that's the case or not. But, um, but yeah, I think it's interesting to see where technology takes us on the whole. If it replaces what some of our, like if it fills the void for what our sports are struggling to do, if like baseball is the, the quintessential example, but if they become like too boring to us or the results are, too obvious to us and what they're going to do. Like how do they, how do the sports, how do the leagues themselves deal with that? But then also how, what, what does technology come in to like change things for us? Um, and I think the technological revolution is like the next really challenging thing for humanity to try to figure out in general, because well, we have no it, handle on it right now. Technology is running absolutely amok. Well, the thing that it's running amok in is financial benefit for a few. And so the more that Bitcoin. You, the more that you condense the wealth on a whole, the the more challenges you have because the more the more variance you introduce into society, right? Like the more that people who are really struggling that their their moral compasses become more compromised. Just because like when you're really struggling and you can't feed yourself or you don't have funds to be able to do what you need to do to live, to just survive. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the gray area on morality, it starts, everything starts to look gray because you're just trying to survive as like your natural instincts are just there for survival. Um, and so like the more technology condenses wealth on a, in the hands of a few, you know, Bezos and whoever else, um, then you, you have more, more likely uprising, more likely revolutions, more likely war. And I think, I think people would be, would say like what you're saying is like an alarmist thing, but pretty much what happens in every revolution is the rich just get too powerful. They just have too much resources. And there's like, and that's, if you think that's not happening in the United States, these are not, these are not new ideas. Like the, the thing, the thing that's so funny about, about authoritarianism is it's always spun as a new idea and it's not a new idea. It's been tested time and time and time again. We've seen this over and over throughout the course of history and it always ends the same way. It ends in a lot of the the wealth and the benefits of life being consolidated within a, a powerful few. And then it ultimately leads to revolution in some way, shape or form. And then it's a battle between those with power and those without. And that, that takes a while to kind of work through. And then ultimately at some point the authoritarian dies off or loses control 
and things kind of shift back and you kind of go in these cycles. But these are not new ideas. Like the idea that we're, you know, that any one person is going to be like the savior and take care of you and take care of humanity as a whole is very unlikely to happen. Like anything that happens to take care of humanity as a whole is going to need to be bottom up, not top down. And like, that's what I, that's what I don't understand in general, why people think that something would be top down. Like we have so much, so many examples of people in history, like power ends up usually corrupting. And why would you want to lose your power when you have all of it? So like I, if, if like long-term humanity issues are going to be solved, they're going to have to come from the bottom up and like people really believing in ideas to try to test things, to improve things. And then everybody kind of being participatory in that. And right now the challenges are like, we're all being, we're all being desensitized to figuring out long-term solutions because we're all, all being, there's a new problem every day. There's exactly, there's a new K like it's very big brother. It's very, um, just manipulative from the top down. It's just like if, if you were a super mega rich, powerful elite, and I'm, I'm not talking like owner of Coca-Cola elite. I'm, I'm talking like owner of the holding company that owns Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and uh, Folgers or whatever, like like 10% of the world's GDP you own. You, you would want what's happening in the United States where like there's a school shooting every day. The president is this giant doofus who's like under investigation, but like also firing people. Like you would want people to be so distracted and desensitized and scared that they just unplugged and stopped caring completely. Yeah. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of distractions at our hands with the technological revolution as well to help us distract ourselves from like all the problems. So it's a, it's just a, it's a really interesting challenge of like evolution as a whole, because you're evolving forward. You're making things easier for everybody um, by doing all these things, but that naturally takes away, you know, labor jobs and different things. And do we try to create those jobs in education or in child rearing? or other areas that can like actually add legitimate benefits to society? Or do we just, you know, keep kind of, you know, trying to fake recreate jobs and just do stuff that's entertainment based and like keeps us distracted instead of educated. Um, and early returns are, it's going to be on the distraction side. The distraction, what, the distraction sector gets bigger every day. It does. And that's where, and that's also where so much of the, uh, capital that like the the social capital that we build up in society is is revolving around now like people like the most famous people are all you know entertainers essentially like it's it's all people that we know to be famous because they entertain as opposed to they're famous because they solve some huge issue that we have going on in humanity like those people like the people that are the top cancer researchers in the world nobody knows no one knows them yeah like like and so as a society, we're pushing all in this direction of, hey, like, let's all get distracted. Let's let all the powerful rich people decide our fates and see where the cards fall. And there's like, there's like not even, there's like not even that tremendous of a financial incentive comparatively in like the academic fields. No, that, I mean, <laughs> that's why. That's because we are taught at a young age that you get what you work for. And that's not entirely true. Like some, some industries are just, you could work 
much harder than everybody else in a different industry and some industries just aren't in favor. And so you don't get as much as you do if you're in an, if you're working in an industry that's in favor. Um, so you're like raised with this premise of like, I need to achieve, I need to achieve, I need to achieve, I need to get materialistic things. And once I get those things, then I'll be then, happy, then I'll be happy and I'll be successful. And so everybody's on that path. And then when we're all, when we're all rewarding the path that is through entertainment and distraction, as opposed to, um, you know, education and evolution, then like the, the, the tides kind of naturally turn and it, the whole society kind of gets dumber. And that's basically what's happening. And I work in a field that is entertainment. So like, I'm not, I'm, I'm literally hosting well. and producing a podcast. Yeah, I'm, the take I'm cast. yeah, totally guilty of this. Like my whole life is revolves around entertainment, sports, Netflix, comedy specials. I think that makes us worse, honestly. Probably. To be, to be actively aware that we're like feeding into this giant capitalist destruction machine and just like just tweeting through it basically. Probably. Like alien Probably. civilizations will not look kind, unlike educated people like you and I that watched all this stuff happen. It's kind of wild to think mm. about. Yeah, if I mean, if they're able to get down to the bottom of what was going on. I mean, whoever, whoever wins gets to write history. So. so kind of on the periphery of all of this, we've kind of danced around it and mentioned it and talked about it. But I do want to talk about the singularity or at least the concept that this is a simulation. Because I do, I do think that just all of, all of these things, every, all, it does seem like we're kind of close to a turning point in Western society. And some of these things would give evidence of the simulation, which is something I know that your buddy Wiggins is, <laughs> uh, is a proponent of. But the singularity, I think, is even more interesting because we definitely do have smart people that are really racing to do more AI and like much more intelligent, much more productive, much more efficient AI. And there's already instances of like deep machine learning happening where the people who create the machine learning have no idea to explain. They, they are unable to explain how the machines are learning what they are learning. They just know that they are. Yeah. And that's pretty terrifying. Because that's like basically the plot of the matrix played out. <laughs> and that's like a, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of very smart scientists who are like, look, it's impossible to artificially create consciousness, but I, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I don't know. This might not um, be your department, but I think that it's we're, not, we're I'm talking not like, a lot about it. We are. We're talking around it for sure. Um, I just don't feel like I'm smart enough to answer the questions on like, will AI end in, you know, Terminator-esque scenes or will it end in like... It could a, end in Westworld type stuff. Yeah. That's a, that's a real thing. We're like, we're still able to have dominion over these like seemingly conscious things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the... <laughs> yeah. I don't know where this all goes in terms of the AI stuff is, is mind blowing, like legitimately mind blowing to try to understand one, where it goes two who's in control of it when, when it gets going in a big way and three, what the ultimate motives will be behind that and what, and who's dictating the motives, whether it's the artificial intelligence or whether it's the creator. And it's also possible that concerns over technology and automation uh, are overblown. Because I do, I, I want to give that perspective 
uh, a chance here because I think you and I are both kind of on the more alarmist side of this. But this is the sort of stuff that people have been saying since the Industrial Revolution, just that technology is going to be the end of us all and that uh, we're advancing too far for our own good. I had a, I had a good pull quote in our outline from Alan Turing, uh, you know, one of the first AI pioneers that said that machines would outstrip our feeble powers and take control. And he said that 67 years ago in 1951. So like kind of even before machines really existed. So it's something that people have believed for a long time. Um, yeah. And, and, and ultimately it kind of comes down to like, where's the line on what artificial intelligence can learn in terms of like consciousness, um, which Westworld really tries to tackle actively throughout the entire show that they're doing. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm my, my hope is that the technological evolution leads to us actively trying to find ways to cure things that should be curable like hunger and people having access to water and different things like that. And that those are the focal points of all those things. And that like we can eventually get to where everybody has a basic living level in the world. That is that, that everybody has a chance. But has there ever been that though? It, through all of human history, has there ever been anything like parody? Pro- probably not, no. right? No, which get, I mean, no, I believe strongly no, because both we had talked about this book before that we both read Guns, Germs, and Steel. Um, that was a Pulitzer Prize winning book that I was, I'm, I'm not forced to read, but it was required reading for my or- freshman orientation. Um, and that book kind of details how, like, even though you might think like your ancestors were great conquerors or something like that, there was a whole lot of geographical luck <laughs> that played a huge role in the development of different societies and, and, um, and civilizations. And essentially, like, if you were fortunate enough to be in the part of the world that had access to be able to grow good crops and didn't get hit with outrageous diseases, you advanced. And the others didn't. And like, that's not really a level playing field. That's just being geographically lucky, right? which still happens to this day. Like I was born in the United States to a well-off family. Like I win a lottery uh, compared to, you know, people growing up in uh, poverty, whether it's this country or different country or wherever. Um, So do we, have we ever had parody? No. Do we strive for it? I hope so. People want it in their sports. Why won't they want it in their I don't think, I don't think anyone, I don't think that many people actually really want like a the percentage of the population of like Western society that's tr- like truly concerned with the plight of the poor or the disenfranchised is probably like 10%. No, sure. It's a small percentage, but when they are the poor and the disenfranchised, right. which, like then maybe they'll care, yeah. but will it be too late? I don't know. A, a tough thing I'm currently dealing with personally is that I've been a lifelong Democrat my whole life. And I, I very strongly believe in like the humanitarian principles of the party, although it's kind of stuff that they've gone away from because the party is such, they're such fish, but I do find myself more and more not. I feel like liberalism has just become really tainted. And I think that it's been, it's become a lot about like very intellectual issues and not so much the stuff that really impacts people's lives. And I bet a lot of Republicans feel that way too. Like I bet there are a lot of, I think that's the biggest criticism 
yeah. is that is that it's 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 not it's not real it's it's manufactured concern that it's not real concern for other people and i think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the democratic party has operated in that fashion yeah um i would what i would suggest is in general uh try not to label yourself like try not to label yourself a liberal a democrat a republican or whatever and try to think through each individual topic as like what what would you feel better about like with this um and that's really really hard to do because when you have to vote on people you need paradigm you need like you need constructs to believe in that these people fit in this box because people don't talk about what their general principles are they don't really talk what they want to do they talk more about like generic things that represent their party um but i think that's ultimately like the way out of this two-party system hell that we're currently in that is just like leading to a potential civil war because people hate each other so much yeah and i think i think that feeling is mutual from like kind of moderate thinkers on both sides just that it's the whole political whatever has become about things that they never cared about well, yeah, and as our our attention spans are shortening as well, you have less time to process people's individual opinions on a on a multitude of things. So it's easier to just frame somebody by a stereotype. You are Democrat. You are Republican. I do, I like Democrats. I don't like Republicans. Or I like Republicans. I don't like Democrats. And thus, this is how I treat you. And that's all a result of our attention span shortening as well, because we just don't have the interest in processing all the all the individuality that goes within. A person as opposed to just like fitting a stereotype for what they are yeah that's true i think you, that uh i just think i think we're at a very interesting part in not western society but just human society for sure and we're Do kind you, of we're kind of like approaching like a. I feel like the population density of the world is like i don't know how long the planet can sustain eight billion people well, the, the planet will naturally take care of that. The planet will, the planet will take care of itself. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The planet will take care of that. It's just so easy to be alive now, though. Like, it's so easy to create a human life and for human life to exist. Like, regardless of what you think about um, poverty and stuff like that, like, it's just easier to, like, not die of cholera. Yeah, but that stuff, that stuff can go in waves. Um, True. You make, you make access to healthcare more difficult and it's going to kill people easier, like quicker. It's just the way that things work. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you think, do you think, do you think your audience one found this interesting at all? No, they're tilted. They're so, yeah. they want to hear, they want to hear Evan Silva talk about his top 150 players in fantasy. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I think I've probably failed your audience in this episode in giving them what they want. Um, so if you'd like to talk if you, about sports a little bit, if you'd like to spend a segment on what the Celtics should do. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about season. what the Celtics should do. Next <laughs> okay, everyone, I will, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make a timestamp. I will, t- when I tweet this episode out, I will tell you fast forward to the end and you will get to hear <laughs> the Drew Dinkmeyer talk about what the Boston Celtics should do in 2018-19. Yeah, so the, the Celtics situation really comes down to essentially who's available to consolidate assets for. So if they can consolidate assets for someone like Kawhi, that's very interesting um, because they just have so much talent available to them. Uh, they, they can't really afford to bring back Marcus Smart, but 
a general basic, you know, rotation of Gordon Hayward, Al Horford, Kyrie Irving, Jason Tatum, uh, still having Marcus Morris and Jalen Brown as well, and then Terry Rozier, that's already too many bodies to play, unless you assume people get hurt again to play meaningful minutes. So they should be trying to capitalize on selling high on the assets that are, you know, guys like Terry Rozier. They should already that, have a deal in place for Terry yeah, Rozier. Like he should be a main selling point for them as well. They also have next year a top five probably pick coming in with that Kings pick. Um, they probably won't need that. So they should be looking to, you know, if, if a legit superstar is available that you can consolidate talent, like an Anthony Davis, like a Kawhi Leonard, they absolutely should be trying to do that. Um, outside of that, they're in this position where they have so many assets at their disposal and they have so many future incoming assets as well that they can just let it simmer, man. Like the league's going to come back to them is the thing that people, I think people are mistaking. Like Golden State, every year we get further out that they have to play this many games and they have to grind through the season they are more likely to have somebody get injured in the playoffs and to derail them. Um, they're also more likely at some of these important guys on their aging curve to just fall off in terms of like Iguodala um, or Draymond Green. Like Draymond looks much see, different I, in the regular I could, season. I could see Iguodala just not being on the team next year. And then, and then they're going to have that decision ultimately on like who they, who they drop. And uh, Clay's saying he's willing to take a lot less money. So maybe they'll be able to make it work. But like, they're going to get hit at some point. These, these runs take a toll on people's bodies over time when they're playing like 100 games a year. Now, modern day NBA is much smarter about that. And yeah. like the Warriors are having all these guys play like 60 regular season games instead of 80. Um, so maybe they'll be able to fend it off. But I don't think the Warriors have much more than like the next two years of utter dominance. And I think even within the next two years, they will be challenged more aggressively than they have been in the previous two. So I, I want to throw, I'm going to throw the sports radio question at you. You got to, you got to ship one of Kyrie or Hayward out of town. Say you're, you, you just, you want to play Jason Tatum. You want to play Jalen Brown and you want to play Al Horford. And then you have either cost controlled Terry Rozier or you pay Marcus Smart and you have to have a fifth guy next to them. Is it Kyrie Irving or Gordon Hayward? So Kyrie has a much more amenable contract. It's, yeah. it's, it costs less, and he's younger, and it's the prime of his years. Hayward's contract is full, and it goes into his 30s. Um, but I think Hayward would also be much more difficult to get an asset, like get a more meaningful asset back for. I disagree so. with you because of the way cap space is going to work out this summer. And there are not really like outside of LeBron and maybe cousins. I don't see anyone getting like the super max or anything like that. Okay. So I think like a, a, a sort of middling team, like a team that could maybe make a jump to like a sixth seed. Like, I think you could get real assets from, from like, uh, from like Denver. Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, in terms of the player themselves, I believe Hayward is more valuable than Kyrie of course because he has more defensive versatility to him. Now, I will say this. Kyrie looked like he tr was trying on defense this year for portions of the regular season, which he has Brad not. Stevens is a wizard. He is not for years. Um, we did not get to see him in the postseason. I don't know if his defensive intensity, because he has the skill set to do it. He just doesn't have interest in doing it. He doesn't fight through screens. 
which is a necessity in the, in the modern MBA when everything is screening and switching. Um, so I, I think Hayward's a more valuable player. I think Hayward's also a much, a little bit more of an unknown because of the severity of the injury. Um, so I'll cop out and I'll say I would rather have Kyrie on my team based on his contract and his age going forward. But I think Hayward is a more difficult player to replace. And I think the combination of Hayward, Tatum, Brown as a wing rotation leaves it so that you can play any type of point guard with them. Any yeah. type. And that flexibility is more valuable to build around, but the difference in the contract makes it so that I prefer Kyrie. I think that's a, a measured take. That's what I would expect from you. That's usually what I give. I don't I have... think I think it's clearly Kyrie, but just for if anyone cares about my opinion. Because I actually think that in all of like the I think that this playoff run has really led to the underrating of what Kyrie can do. Like Kyrie kind of has this skill set, like kind of Curry esque, and that you're you're never coaching someone to dribble and to create space that way. You just kind of have to have that preternatural ability to do it. Yeah, and I will give credit where credit's due because I've always like when I talk about players' valuations, I largely think of them over the course of a season. I don't think of them as like in an individual game, like who would I want? And CSU, Peter Jennings had said this a lot to me and he's a huge Kyrie fan. He said like what Chris Paul fan. So what, what Kyrie can accomplish in the playoffs is so much more valuable than a lot of the point guards that he might not be able to add value above and beyond during the course of the regular season. And I think over the course of the last few playoffs that has really played out because ultimately there's, heavier rounds of isolation basketball in really key moments. And Kyrie is one of the very best in the league at isolation basketball. Um, He's probably like the best in terms of like guard scoring in isolation. In terms of guards, I would guess that he's top five. It's, it's um, like him, Harden, Paul, Curry, and yeah, know who the those f- would be the guys. Those would be the guys. Um, when you add wings like KD and stuff, he's still competitive with a lot of those guys, but those guys have just such a big size advantage that, it's probably better. But um, I think Kyrie is also, like getting back to that point, when you have all this really great foundational pieces around, um, you'll need like that go-to scorer in the playoffs. Kyrie can be that. And I think Tatum is showing I think that that's the thing. That. There's, that's, that's the new alpha dog issue. Like three years from now, it's going to be like Tatum, Tatum and Kyrie who should have the last shot. Like, it might I, I, I can already see that being a story. It, it might be. I don't know. I was so wrong on Tatum, like so wrong. Just and I didn't really. I don't really watch college basketball, so it was mostly from watching a bit in summer league and being like, this guy just he takes bad shots and like he played such a controlled season for a rookie for a twenty year old just out, 19, out of nineteen. Yeah, I mean, just he's unbelievable, and he gets to the basket with such ease, which is such an unbelievable skill to have with being able to shoot, which, you know, Ben Simmons has the first and not the second. And you amazing, see amazing that Danny Ainge got his guy and then traded a guy with a shoulder that doesn't work to Brian Colangelo, who probably haven't checked Twitter while we've been on, could be fired right now. <laughs> that, the, the Colangelo story is, is unbelievable. It's the most amazing, like the NBA is so amazing. The NBA is a soap opera for men. Yeah. And, and the characters are actually likable, so it's much better than the NFL. We're like, they're very rarely well, there There's characters. In the NFL, there's not characters. There's just faceless jerseys. Yeah. And J.J. Watt. Yeah. <laughs> and Tom Brady. And that's it. Like, we don't have faces in the NFL like you do in the NBA. 
So you don't have like, you have teams that are villains. You don't have players that are villains as much. It's just, a, it's a different league in the way that it's marketed. And also like you can't market that way in the NFL because bodies go quickly in the NFL. You don't have a lot of time to market those guys. Yeah. So. Yeah. They're players famous for three, like Arian Foster. Yeah. Gone. No one knows what that guy does anymore. He was on top of the world four years ago. He's probably hosting podcasts just like this, talking about society and philosophy. He, he was big into veganism for a while. He, he enjoys the political soapbox. Is okay, he, so how is veganism a political soapbox? Oh, have you, those, ever, have you ever met really, a vegan? Yeah, I mean, I've like, I've, I, I have not gone vegan, but I've severely cut down my uh, meat intake. Because, so like, not because you feel bad for the animals, but because it's a political thing. No, what? No, because <laughs> no, because I need to be healthier, <laughs> and there's a health there's a healthier route to to at least for my body if when I cut down a lot of meat and stuff. That was not the Arian Foster take. The Arian Foster take is that he cares for the animals. No, the meat industry is just like this big horrible disease monster, which mm. is actually true. Hundred yeah, percent meat processing fair. is like horrible for the planet. Hor- like it's not good. Yeah, that's cool. but that's probably what he's doing. He's probably hosting philosophical podcasts. I'm going to look it up after the show. The last question will give people a little bit more basketball talk. Okay. Is Warriors Cavs for like, how much do you actually care? Is it ruining your enjoyment of the playoffs and of the regular season to feel like this is a foregone conclusion? It does. It doesn't for me, but you see why it would. Yeah. I, I totally understand why it would, but for me, like, the the most entertaining things for me when I watch basketball are players' individual performances within the concept of a team. Yeah. So I like agree. watching Steph Curry go in Fuego is my favorite thing in basketball. Like when he just starts launching from forty feet and everything's going in and it's just it's it's my favorite thing in basketball. Uh that and like watching Jokic like initiate offense and pass from all sorts of angles that you would think are totally like unseeable and like do it with finesse that a big shouldn't be able to have. That is super exciting to me. Watching LeBron's like raw force that he's able to put on a court um, is unbelievable. Watching Embiid's skill set for his size is those are the things that interest me when I watch an NBA game. It's not the end result of the game. And what so, about watching Westbrook shoot eighteen foot jump shots? That 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 will bury me. Or like, Carmel <laughs> or Carmelo jab stepping. But yeah, I don't watch a lot of Thunder basketball. Uh, wow, you're not, really missing out. It was a it was not, a phenomenal season. Everyone was really happy and had fun the whole time. It's not the most entertaining form of basketball to me. So, so for me, like the playoffs is, I get to watch the brilliance of the individuals, and so I still get that, and I get to watch LeBron face you know what seems like an unconquerable task, and that's cool to me. Um, but yeah, for people that like care really deeply about the result, I get it. I get why it would be frustrating because it does feel like a known thing. I would say though, like, do you carry that same mantra into all other fields of entertainment? Because my guess is when you go to an action movie, you know the result, you know who's going to be at the top at the end of the action movie and you don't really care because you've been entertained for the two hours. But that's, that's like probably a difference in expectation though. You know, you expect that out of an action movie. You don't expect that out of sports. The things people love the most about sports are like you know the miracle on ice or when leicester city won the premier league like that's what makes people love sports 
Yeah. And those moments are awesome. It's, but they're few and far between because they're low probability outcomes. I think that'll do it. <laughs> I Good hope, I, I hope that we get some hate tweets. I hope that at least four people actually made it to the end of this. Uh, and if you did, I salute you. The, the, well, the people who made it to the end aren't going to be the ones with the hate tweets. It's going to be the people who made it through the first 15 minutes and were like, they listen, they listen to the show with these, Evan. These uppity hipsters that yeah. are talking philosophy and who do they think they are? Those are going to be the people in my mentions. Cause that's, that's generally the kind of uh, feedback that I get on a lot of this stuff is like, who do you think you are? You think you're so important. You think you've got all these great ideas and it's solved. And I was like, I'm just trying to talk through things, man. Just trying to think about the world in a different way than the way that I was raised. Well, I know that I don't have any answers, but if you want to send hate tweets at Davis Maddock, at Drew Dinkmeyer, also the show is now on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, anywhere you want to listen to podcasts. If you leave a review, I will read it on air, unedited. One star review, fine. On air, unedited. And I will give you a shout out by name. If you tweet at me and tell me that it's there and you want me to add something to it, I will do that. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And hopefully uh, the next show will be less uppity.